0: Hello, everybody. As we uh, welcome one another back, we continue right where we left off, beginning in Chapter 7 of the dedicated teaching of the Twelve Apostles concerning baptism. Uh, And remember, of course, the the context that I was saying, I I took a stand on this document myself. I said, as far as I can tell from um, my opinion of the document, although others do disagree with me, uh, it looks... I would say as a catechetical document. So this is how we should understand it. And it makes sense, right? We're moving from, this is the same uh, setup that we have in our Lutheran catechisms, both small and large. We move from the ethical teaching down to the gospel, but they do this through the entry point of the church, which is of course, as you probably all know, the sacrament of holy baptism. And so beginning there, um, the text says concerning baptism thus baptize ye having first said all these things now what reference is it as to having first said all these things is that to be taken literally as in all these first things in regard to um, the catechism that we just had um, or the catechetical teachings that we have just had so these teaching of the two ways and the teaching of good works and the teaching of um, uh, repentance and against sin and all such things and then uh, bring them into baptism—that would make sense. I mean, that—that that is basically the structure of our catechism as well. Or is this an implicit, um, I guess, an implicit reference upon having said some other kind of baptismal rite that is being uh, implied here? I would say probably the the former assumption would be the would be the the safer one to take. Um, that this is in regard to catechetical teaching, even if it's just a recitation. We don't know. We do, we really don't know. But having said all these things, he says, baptize in the, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And s- simply stopping there, this solves a lot of um, debate, a lot of what you would say is, uh, how would you say this, I suppose? A lot of controversy in regard to the level of Trinitarian orthodoxy that's necessary to be considered a Christian. And I say that especially in regard to uh, Pentecostals, Oneness Pentecostals, people who believe in baptizing in the name of Christ, and they mean this literally as in not the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the way that we speak of those people, the way that we address them is as modalists or Oneness Pentecostals. This is not the early church practice. We know that, not just from the Didache. But the Didache, again, it's teaching us what we already should know as Trinitarian Christians. We are not baptized literally into the name of Christ only, but into the name of Christ as shorthand for the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they say baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But here's something that's distinct from the way that a lot of especially Western Christians think these days. For example, I was uh, baptized in a Roman Catholic setting. I don't know if it was by sprinkling or by pouring. I know a lot of you were probably baptized, uh, sorry, not Roman, um, but Lutheran. And as such, um, you're probably baptized through sprinkling or through pouring. And yet that's not what the Didache is saying. It doesn't say... Sprinkle, it doesn't say pour, and this is um, something that a lot of the Reformed churches completely ignore, or don't understand, or don't know about, or completely ignorant of. Because if you look at a lot of the Dutch Reformed and Presbyterian authors, they speak of infant baptism as always obviously being sprinkling, or always obviously being pouring, though they do favor sprinkling a lot of the time. And the early church does not share that view. Neither does the East, neither does the Orient, right? And so they say, no, 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 no. You're going to baptize them in living water. And if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you can't, in cold and warm, but if not either, pour out the water. And so there's a the there's the distinction for you. What's the assumption in regard to baptism? That it's immersion. And this isn't to go to the full kind of uh, the Baptistic argument. However, one would want to make that, and I know you've probably all heard those arguments, as I've had to suffer through hearing those arguments, such as to say, however they want to say it, that to baptize in full immersion is absolutely necessary and all other baptisms are invalid. That idea is also repudiated by the Didache. And so the Didache is taking, if you will, almost this kind of middle position. If you can baptize them by immersion, but not only just by immersion, it says if you can baptize them in living water, this is running water. For example, at St. Matthew's Lutheran Church, we're right across from the St. Lawrence River. We can walk there. It's literally, if I walk out my church office doors, And go straight for 30 seconds, I'll hit the St. Lawrence River. The Didache is telling me, we obviously we have a baptismal font here, we have actually two. But the Didache is saying, don't use the baptismal font. It's not necessary. Go, do the ideal thing, baptize into the St. Lawrence. If you don't have a St. Lawrence, you don't have a lake, you don't have a river, then baptize into still... Water, right, and and he says not just this, but it should also be cold. If not cold, then do it in warm, right? If you don't have either running uh, water or um, still water, like a pool or something like a a baptistry kind of pool, um, then do it in you know cold. If not cold, then warm. And if you don't have any of that, then you can start talking about pouring. And as you pour, you do this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, this is another thing. Again, a lot of these things are um, concepts, teachings, rudimentary, basic things we should be doing that we're not, that we forgot to do, that we stopped thinking about doing. Um, it's not like I just stumbled upon the dedicate. Everyone who knows me knows me, that knows that I've been trying to get everyone around me to start doing the things we forgot to be doing for so many years. But the thing is when we, when we only read books and talk to people and hear voices from people who are in the era of when we stop doing these things, we're never going to hear about the things we stopped doing, the things we should be doing. And one of these things he says that should be, we should be doing before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized fast as well. And whatever's, and whatever others can do. So they should fast too. If there's a baptism coming up, yeah, you should encourage the church to be fasting. But you as the pastor, if you're the if you're the pastor, if you're the one baptizing, you should be fasting. The one who's being baptized, they also should be fasting. But of course, a lot of people aren't going to suggest that because that's going to sound weird or Catholic or something, right? And yet, this is the faith. This is true. And so this is what we ought to do. And Honestly, I'm really just tired of hearing people say, no, I have Christian freedom to not do all these good, beneficial things. That's such a terrible argument. We all know that these are good things to be doing. We all know what good discipline looks like. Using Christian freedom as an excuse to not do good, healthy things is not freedom, but slavery to your own laziness and complacency and lackluster zeal or lack of zeal. goodness, And so instead of just going willy-nilly and acting as though nothing special is happening, fast, prepare. And this goes also for penitential seasons. It goes for um, actually feasting during church feasts, right? Actually embodying through our own daily lives, not just while we're at the church building, but actually embodying um, the church year, actually embodying the things that are happening in that liturgy, in the rest of our doings. And our actions throughout the week, um, not just when there's a baptism, but for feasts, for penitential seasons, for for all of these things. Of course, um, as you should all know, in the Small Catechism, in regard to the Lord's Supper, Luther, Doctor Luther, says, and we confess, uh, what is necessary to rightly partake of the sacrament worthily. And Luther says, and we confess, it is truly it is good physical discipline, fasting, and all such things. That's good bodily discipline, but what makes you worthy, so on and so forth. And people like to quote that and say, look, I don't need to fast. It's good bodily discipline. And I stop them there. I say, ah, it's good bodily discipline. No one is saying these things make you worthy of baptism, right? No one is saying that without fasting, you can't be baptized. They're simply saying this is a good thing to do, so you should do it. You should make this the rule because it's a good thing to do. Not a rule as in you have to do it as in a law of God, but something that's good to do. So he says, but you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. So notice here, the language is going from um, encourage the whole congregation to fast. But he says, order the one being baptized to fast. And it's not a small fast either. Fast one or two days before. To what level of fasting one might um, imagine being done here is, is honestly up for debate. Very likely. This is a complete fast, very likely. So no food at all, water's allowed, but no food at all for one or two days before. And that's not that extreme. People do this for surgeries all the time. So again, I think we really, as the church, we need to get our priorities straight. We're willing to fast one, two days, even more, completely, no food at all for a surgery, for our physical flesh, yet we won't care to fast for our spiritual health. We don't care. We don't uh, pay attention to spiritual surgeries. We minimize them. Uh, We don't engage with them throughout the week. We don't uh, embody them throughout the week. And so is it really a surprise? Should it be a surprise to any of us when these things are not actually cared about? No, not at all. Moving on concerning fasting and prayer, the Lord's prayer in brackets, but let not your fasts be with the hypocrites. This is all about fasting, if you will, right? As to when it is, what it what it looks like for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, but you fast on the fourth day and the preparation day, that's Wednesday and Friday. And if anybody uh, was ever wondering why do Lutherans always have midweek Vespers in Lent and in Advent, this is the reason. The reason is this Wednesday and Friday were fasting days, right? In the early church, as you're seeing here in the Didache, As we see many other places, Wednesday and Friday were the two fasting days. Historically, actually year round. And we we see this because especially of the, the new work that's being done for the Lutheran Missile Project. They have collated all of these different church orders from Reformation era Germany, from before the Reformation, after the Reformation, during the Reformation. They put them all together universally, all of the Lutheran churches, all of the Catholic churches before the Reformation in Europe. They were holding services all year round, Wednesday and Friday if they weren't having daily services, a lot of them were. And then in Lent, they picked up to um, daily services if they didn't already have that. Now, as that began to, because of the influence of Satan, obviously, who hates the means of grace and hates our reception of it, um, as the frequency of the church's worship decreased, we kept these penitential days of Wednesday and Friday. Uh, uh, Eventually it became just Wednesday, just during Advent and Lent, but that's the reason. And so this all comes back to this original practice of fasting two days a week, Wednesday and Friday. And if you go and you look at the original ways of fasting, it was not this kind of partial fast of like, Oh, become a vegan for a day. No, it was complete fast. Don't eat any food at all. Um, But even then, even, even not including that, um, I think one of, the, one of the terrible things that's happened to us is even in our most rigorous forms, thinking of the Oriental churches who go full vegan when they fast, which if you know any vegans, they're not suffering. That's not really fasting at all. Um, the Muslims don't eat, but they eat uh, – sorry, they don't eat during Ramadan, which is their penitential season, during the, the sunshine hours. So now here's a question. Should, should we, it's not, it's not that it's a competition, but I think the fact that so many of us, we whine and complain when a season of fasting comes up, we want, we whine and complain about having to go vegan, not having to, but doing it or giving up chocolate. And these people who have a completely false God have no problem doing it for almost the whole day, no food at all. These people who have a false God, they pray five times a day and we, what we struggle to pray once. We struggle to pray one of the daily offices. And so one would look at that, and people do, people are, and they say, well, you want me to believe your God is real, yet you don't act like your God is real. You don't act like your religion is legit or that I should care about it, right? That's a problem. And so he says here, positively, fast, at least twice a week on top of penitential seasons. Wednesday and Friday, these are the historic days for fasting neither pray as the hypocrites do, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, thus pray our father who art in heaven. There there we go. The whole, our father. And one of the super interesting things there is at the end of it, there is that, Peace that the the Protestants still have. The Orthodox have it as well, but their priests say it. Some would say the Roman Catholics have it. It's just at a different part of the liturgy. Yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, We all know that's kind of a tenuous idea. Thrice in the day you shall pray this prayer. So not just once a day are we praying the Our Father, but three times a day. So this is rote, ritualistic repetition of memorized prayers in the early church. And this was taken literally, as Jesus says, when you pray, say this. He doesn't say, when you pray, say something like this. He doesn't say, when you pray, just talk to God with whatever's on your mind. That's a completely unbiblical idea. He never says that. It's Sorry, I should say extra biblical idea. It's not necessarily unbiblical. It's just not there, right? What is there is, when you pray, say this, these exact words our father who art in heaven. Right. And so this idea of, um, ritualistic memorized prayer, written prayer being bad, that's nonsense. God loves it. He gave it to us. It's a gift. Now, moving on from, um, prayer to the Eucharist. And again, this is one of the reasons why, um, I think it's so important, uh, to read this as a catechism, because as people of the catechism of Luther's catechisms, um, I don't. I'm not so familiar with the Roman Catechism, but I'm very familiar with the Reformed Catechism. But more, more familiar with our own as Lutherans. We begin as Lutherans with the Law. We move to the Creed. We move to Baptist Sorry, we move to the Creed. We move to the, our Father, to the Lord's Prayer. We move to um to Baptism, to Confession, to the Eucharist. What have we done so far? It's very, very, very similar. So we've moved from Ethics, the Law. That's same place that the Lutherans begin. Then they moved to their kind of entryway to the Gospel. They didn't insert the creed here, but what they did was they went straight to baptism. The way that the gospel actually hits the ground running in the Christian life, then they moved on to prayer and fasting is part of prayer. And this also enforces or helps us to enforce um, the initiatory nature of baptism that baptism leads to prayer rather than this uh, baptistic idea that true prayer is or is a requirement to lead to baptism it's really the other way around because that baptism uh, in baptism and confirmation which comes with it right we're filled with the holy spirit and that holy spirit uh, aids us in prayer and prayer should never be apart from the life of fasting and then we move, of course, we're brought then to um, the Eucharist. By the way, of course, prayer, the liturgy is part of this. So um, liturgy, our father, uh, which is part of the liturgy, and fasting all together, and the life of good works as well, coming into then uh, the altar. Now, concerning thanksgiving, in brackets, it says Eucharist, because Eucharist just means thanksg- thanksgiving in Greek, thus give thanks. And this is really what what's what's happening here, is that the way that the early fathers thought of what we call communion, they spoke of always as thanksgiving, right? And so now concerning the thanksgiving, the Eucharist, thus give thanks. And of course, they thought of this Eucharist primarily as this sacrament, not only of thanksgiving, but as a prayer, right? That this is a prayer itself. This sacrament itself is a prayer. And so they say, thus give thanks, thus Eucharist. First concerning the cup, we thank you, our father, for the holy vine of David, your servant. So now this is a beautiful thing because already the the vine, right? The The wine, the cup, the 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 grape blood in there is associated with Christ. Um, I forget the uh, the figure of speech being used here. I should remember it because it's one Lutherans talk about all the time. But it's the one wherein I would say, "This is my this is my coffee," but I'm holding a cup. I forget the term for this. Jordan Cooper talks about it a lot. It's very important to us. Um, and so he says, concerning the cup, concerning the vine, we thank you for the holy vine of David, thy servant. This is basically a poetic thing because, of course, um, Jesus Christ is, is, is the vine coming out of that root, that stump of Jesse. And yet also in the cup is the blood of the grapes of the vine, right? Whereas the bread is remaining uh, in existence as well as the cup. This is also showing us, that um, this is not this kind of transubstantiation thing, though you do find that in the fathers as well, um, and so that's not necessarily to say that the authors of the Didache, whether they are the apostles or not, did rejected transubstantiation. It's I don't honest, I honestly don't think that the that the ways of speaking in regards to transubstantiation or sacramental union are mutually exclusive. I don't think that they are. But what is beautiful here, I think, is the the language of the association of the one with the other, right? So concerning the cup, we thank you, Father, for the holy vine of David, thy servant, who is the Christ, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be glory forever and ever. And concerning the broken bread, and this is also an interesting thing that the bread liturgically speaking here is already broken there is a fraction here a, a lot of lutherans uh, myself as included just because this is how i was trained taught it's so rooted in my brain we don't we don't break the we don't we don't do the fraction we don't break the bread um i think it's important to do it but just because of how i was trained i always i don't so But the bread here is broken. Concerning the broken bread, which is already broken here, we give, we thank you, our Father, for the life and the knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus your servant. To thee be glory forever and ever, even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one. So let your church be gathered into one from the ends of the earth to the kingdom. So not only is the the bread being, and here's what I want to be careful with. It's not that it's being associated with Christ in regard to this kind of and bear memorialism, but it's being associated with Christ in regard to the union between the two. So the bread and, and the cup are Christ, right? They give us Christ. They are Christ, sacramental union. And in the same way that this bread is then associated with the church through the mystical body of Christ, right? Even as this broken bread is scattered over the hills and gathered together to become one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom for yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever and ever. So at the beginning, all the way to the end, in this Eucharistic prayer, Jesus Christ is at the center, right? And so it is not it is not up for debate what the early church believed communion was in reference to or what the object of it was. And a lot of people listening to this probably don't even know that there are people who question it. I'm not talking about whether or not they think it's real presence or not. But if you go to a lot of Anglican priests, Anglican services, they refer to the Eucharist as referring to the church, that the body is Christ more than it's of, sorry, the body is the church rather than um, Christ. This is not what we're finding here. It's not what you're finding anywhere. But let no one eat or drink of this Eucharist who has not been baptized into the Lord, for concerning this, also the Lord has said, "Give not that which is holy to the dogs." And I love this application of that verse. But again, here this settles the argument. Again, only happening with Anglicans, the Anglicans were uh, communing unbaptized people, not to be done. And why? It's not um, now. I really want. I really want to stress their hermeneutic here their pastoral application in the dedicate it's not because of this kind of thing that we often hear in lutheran circles which is like oh well if you partake of the eucharist wrongly you drink and eat it to your damnation no it's not that argument at all it's this that we do not want to profane the holy things that's it that's the that's it right? It's not, because the thing that, that you'll often hear in Missouri Synod Circles, sorry, I outed who it was. I didn't want to. I was trying not to do that. In Missouri Synod Circles, um, and Wells also to a lesser extent, they often say, oh no, that we're not letting you commune is not us saying you're not saved or that you're not a Christian. Um, it's for your sake. That's not here in the dedicate. It's not spoken about for your sake. It's spoken about for the sake of the sanctity, the holiness of the Eucharist, give not that which is holy to the unholy. Simple. For though that which is holy, this is part of the ancient patristic liturgies. The holy things are for the holy. But after you are filled, give thanks this way. I am, of course, paraphrasing a little bit because this is written in Elizabethan thus give thanks we thank you holy father for your holy name and again this is a basically this is another eucharistic prayer oh by the way um it has been noted by some protestant patristic scholars if we will call them that that there's no mention of the verba here there's no mention of the words of institution and yet what i would like to say about this is that if this is a catechism for the use of the laity there doesn't necessarily need to be one. There doesn't necessarily need to be one, especially regarding the fact of, um. I know it's it is an abuse, but the Rome, the Western Church, for so long didn't even pronounce it audibly. Uh, this is only a problem if the Didache is read specifically and solely as a church order, so as to say every word on this is what the priest does. That's not the point, right? That's really not the point. But after you're filled, that is after you eat of this Eucharist, give thanks again. So just as with the meals, you should know in your Luther's small catechism, before we eat the meal, we give thanks. After we eat the meal, not the sacrament, but any meal, right, we return thanks. In the same way with the sacrament, we do this also. And this is actually one of the beautiful functions of um Churches that have not stubbornly rejected the Eucharistic prayers, you know who I'm talking about, if that's your church, don't do that. Um, Is that you should have the spiritual capacity and fiber to know that you should be giving thanks when you eat normal food. How much more then is it right to give thanks before you eat the sacrament? And you should have the spiritual moral fiber to return thanks after you eat earthly food. So how much more then should you have the spiritual fiber to return thanks after you eat the heavenly food? So before we eat of the sacrament of the altar and after we eat of it, we give thanks. Both are Eucharistic prayers on each side. But after you are filled with the sacrament, thus give thanks. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you did cause to tabernacle in our hearts, that is to take up home in our hearts, to make us your temple, your dwelling place. And he does this in one of the sharpest, most poignant, beautiful ways when we partake of this sacrament. And he's united with us and comes into us through our partaking of him. And for the knowledge and the faith and immortality which you have made known to us, actually given to us through your servant and Melanchthon in the loveliest of ways, he says, to know Christ is to know his benefits, right? This is true. We know Christ in that we have been made known, or sorry, The benefits of Christ, salvation, immortality, eternal life, forgiveness, have been made known to us through our knowing of him and being known by him. To you then be glory forever and ever, you, master almighty. And this is beautiful too, master. You see this again in the patristic liturgies all the time, this master of, of, uh, sorry, language of masters and servants and the house of the Lord. A lot of this is lost in our own modern democratic capitalistic culture. And that's a sad thing, but these are beautiful beautiful ways of thinking and speaking. And so he continues on, you give food and drink to men for enjoyment. And this is again, picking up on this common theme here in the Eucharistic prayers of the Didache, regard or connecting the Eucharist to our physical fleshly food that we eat at other occasions. You freely gave us spiritual food and drink and life through your servants. So this again, just as all Eucharistic prayers are done, um, If you have the LBW, maybe you're familiar with that. I don't know... If the, uh, if the Missouri Synod's LSB has any kind of Eucharistic prayers or anything. But um, <clears throat> if not, your pastor should just make them up, honestly. Basically, the idea is we're giving him thanks for all that he's done. We're giving thanks for all of his creedal stuff that he creates us, sustains us, saves us, gives us earthly food as well as spiritual food. We give thanks for the glory of creation. We give thanks for the Messiahship of Christ. We give thanks for the sacrifice for our sins. We give thanks and we ask that he makes us into one body right the church and so he says remember lord your church deliver it from all evil make it perfect in your love gather it from the four winds sanctify it for your kingdom and which you've prepared for for thine is the power and the glory forever let grace come and let this world pass away hosanna to the son to 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 the god of david to the son of david if anyone is holy let him come if anyone is not now here's the thing let him repent. Again, this is regarding the altar. Maranatha, Amen. Be, but permit the prophets—that is, the pastors—really, if you wanted to apply this to ways we speak to make Thanksgiving as much as they desire. That is to ad lib upon um, the Eucharistic prayer. Again, this is not. This is not really placed as. Um, it's not placed as a church order. This is not a missal that the that the priests are to be reading verbatim. And so he says, um, let your priest, let your prophet, do this as much as he wants. Say what he wants. Whosoever, therefore, this is on teachers, apostles, and prophets. And I suppose just before we move on... um, Uh, St. Matthew's is a Green Book LBW church. I know a lot of you are also in the same boat with Green Book LBW churches. The others, I don't know what you guys use, but um, for us, we have this. We have this. We have the Eucharistic prayers. We have, I think, six of them uh, to choose from. Maybe that's five because one of them is just the bare words of institution. And then after communion, we have the post-communion collect, which is a prayer after communion, which is for that exact purpose. It's a prayer of thanksgiving for what we've received there. However, oddly and almost uniquely, the LBW has the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, in a place that's not usually seen. So it's actually the, the structure of our own liturgy in the Green Book in the LBW is um, the Sursum Corda. And there comes that that what we would call the, the Eucharistic Preface. And then we have the Eucharistic prayer. Sorry, no. Then we have the, whole, the 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 Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy. Then we have the Eucharistic prayer, then the words of institution, then the Our Father, then uh it's not in the green book. Most of us will use a Eucharistic warning. And then we have a uh, the partaking Then we have the August Day, then we have the blessing of the Benedict, the Eucharistic benediction, and then we have the prayer after communion, the post communion collect. And the one that we usually use is the one that comes straight from St. John Chrysostom. Um, And uh, I think that's probably pretty universal. So, and then uh, catechetically, and this is something, again, this is something rudimentary, something important of the Christian faith, knowing about the officers of the church. We have this not in our catechism. Actually, that's not true. Some editions of the catechism, such as the one that Calc has printed from Solo Publishing, and I know that L- LCMC and NALC and ALC are also in the same boat with uh, using Solo Publishing, but we all have that chapter in the small catechism on what's called the Office of the Keys, and so, in the office of the keys, we talk about uh, the power to loosen, to bind, to forgive sins, or to uh, bind someone away in 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 their sins. And this is for the pastor. Now, also, we have in the Oxford Confession an expansion upon this, in Article 14, that we we believe, teach, and confess that no no one is to preach or administer the sacraments without being rightly, duly called, and ordained. So. Uh, Chapter 11, now here we are concerning teachers, apostles and prophets and the charismatics would of course have a heyday with the, with the wording here i'm not even going to get into that but i guess one thing that i could say is in the scriptures as well as in the early church prophesying does not just mean oracling oracling be doing giving oracles uh prophes- prophesying about something that's going to happen in the future saying it's a word of the lord this is one kind of prophecy called an oracle this is not the exclusive use of the word in the scriptures not the exclusive u- use of the word in the early church but to preach is to prophesy. This is actually one way to say that. Um, in And the, the, we even see this in the scriptures, uh, to also proclaim something, even if you're not preaching it technically, it's it can be spoken of as prophesying. So one way that you could read this, teachers, that is, uh, you could also say doctors of the church, which the church has always had, right? Professors, teachers, Bible study type things, apostles, we know what those are, but we don't have them anymore, and preachers. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, In regard to apostles, of course, messengers are something that we all have. Yet, um, one thing that I think is super obvious and important is that never, ever, 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 after the apostles died, did the church, until these Pentecostal people come around, did people start saying that they were apostles again? And so if we wanted to debate on the dating of the Didache, I think this is one thing that is actually very, very relevant. Because if if that holds true, then in such a case, this would mean that this comes from a time when the apostles were rolling about. Which would make sense with its title. Whosoever therefore comes and teaches you all these things, as have been said before, receive him. And this, of course, again, helps us to date the text, as I would say. Because early in the church, churches were established. Um, there were no kind of roaming preachers. There were no no such thing as a roaming pastor. There were no circuit-riding uh, fathers, if you will. And so that this is happening speaks to the early nature of the writing, of the teaching. That doesn't necessarily mean that at the same time that it was written or began to be circulated, that it was immediately put into the form we have it today. That's not necessarily the same thing, but at least this portion of the Didache seems to definitely come from a very, very early place in the church's history. But if the teacher himself has truth and teaches another doctrine, sorry, if he turns and teaches another doctrine, that is to the ones you've heard from the only faith handed down once for all, he does this uh, to the destruction of these things you've heard before. Hear him not, don't hear him, don't listen to him, don't entertain him, don't be open to listening to various perspectives, but reject him, right? But if he teaches to increase righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord receive him, And here's another thing, as the Lord, again, this comes back to what we discussed last week in regard to teaching, uh, sorry, um Uh, ministering in the office, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. But concerning the apostles, now this is, again, back to this uh, thing I was just saying about the dating of this in regard to the actual office of, of apostle. As such, they had to have been rolling around concerning the apostles and the prophets. And and if that dating is true, yeah, it can actually mean to people who have that gift of prophesying oracles in the future. It can, totally, totally. We see that in the scriptures definitely, for sure. Um, And now for them, right? According to the decree of the gospel, this do. Let every apostle that comes to you be received as the Lord. So they're not they're not uh, being received as the Lord, and then the pastors are not. No, same thing. Both are received as the Lord in Persona Christi, but he shall not re- remain. This is specifically for the apostles and the prophets. Um, sorry, this is, yeah, this is apostles and prophets. If Except, don't let him stay with you except one day. If there is need, also two days, like the next one too. But if he remains three days, he's a false prophet, because then you see he's not actually going to travel to be sent out to spread the gospel. He's just looking to um, not make a buck, but make a living, if you will, to make a sustenance through his teaching. And when the apostle goes, let him take nothing but bread until he lodges again. So don't give him a bunch of stuff. If he asks for stuff, if he asks for money, if he asks for more than just bread for his travels, he's a false prophet. Why? Because Jesus sent them out to take nothing. Again, this relates to the dating of the text. And every prophet that speaks in the Spirit, again, this relates to whether or not we are talking about preaching or oracling. This does lean towards oracling. If he speaks in the Spirit, you shall neither try nor judge, for every sin shall be forgiven. But this sin shall not be forgiven. And this relates to the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is the way they understood it at this point in the early church history, is that they didn't understand this as um, unrepentant unbelief at the end of your life. No, but the rejection of prophecy. But not everyone that speaks in the spirit is a prophet. But if he holds the ways of the Lord, then he is. Therefore, from their ways, you shall see the false prophet and the prophet. That's true. He'll be known, right? So you'll know. One by uh, a tree by their fruit. This is the same uh, understanding. And every prophet who teaches the truth, if he does not do what he teaches, that's if he's a hypocrite. If he says do this and he doesn't do it himself, if he uh, talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk, he's a false prophet. But whoever says in the spirit, give me money or something else, and don't listen to him, and that's pretty much that's uh, most Pentecostals these days, right? That's the word of faith guys. I shouldn't say most, but that's the that's the ones you see uh, causing trouble out there. Now. As for the reception of Christians, and this has to do with um, charity and care for others and hospitality, um, let everyone who comes in the name of the Lord be received. This is something again we've lost. We've lost so many rudimentary, basic things. It's so depressing. Every t- this is one of the one of the reasons I didn't want. You know, it's not that I didn't want to open up patristic books and start um, talking about them on the Lutheran library, but I knew that if we did this, this would happen just this uh, lamenting and depressing, depressing and and all of such things, because you see here things that are so basic. Like if you find, if a Christian comes to you, how's them? And yet now we have things like um, uh, church conventions are happening and we don't know where to have them because of the hotel costs and no one's willing to take people into their homes. No one's hospitable. And even with people in our own church, we get a visitor, no one invites them out for lunch. Um, no one even talks to one another. No one's friends with one another outside of the divine service. It's just it's depressing. But every first fruit, therefore, of the products of the wine press and threshing floor of oxen and sheep, you shall take and give to the prophets, for they are your high priests. Again, this relates to um, um, the the tithe, if you will, kind of not the tithe, but the the understanding of tithing of giving to the church. And here is this distinction between prophets and priests. But if you have not a prophet, give it to the poor. And so this, obviously, it teaches you this is a little bit of church order. There's nothing wrong with having church order and catechetical materials. There is overlap there. Here, the the priorities of the church is giving, the priority of the church's use of finances is already spoken of here. The first priority, um, it's to give to the clergy. Secondly, if you don't have them, give it to the poor. But the clergy themselves are to give money to the poor. And then the giving of alms is to the poor, straight to the poor. So the way that they give money and the way that we give money are different. This is a contextual difference, and there's lots to be said about that. Maybe on another episode, we'll talk about giving and how how that works now, how that used to work, how that should work. But he says, Take the first fruit, make a batch of dough, and of anything, right? Of anything, the first fruit, and this uh, relates to tithing, um, the first fruit of everything. This is the notion regarding the Lord's Day and assembling on the Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, gather together. It's not. It's not up for debate. Every Lord's Day in honor of the Lord's resurrection. Some people will say, um, quoting Paul in Colossians chapter two, one or. Er, No, not chapter two, maybe just chapter two, because I know in chapter two, he speaks of the Sabbath as a shadow of the fullness in Christ. True. The Lord's Day is not the Sabbath. But then Paul also says, let no one judge you in regard to the day or seasons or food or drink or whatever. Um, And again, I'm going to bring up what I've been bringing up for days and months and years stop. We, we need to stop using Christian freedom to not do things we should be doing. We should be meeting once a week. We should be meeting on the day of our Lord's resurrection and breaking bread, that is, and breaking bread and giving thanks. This is the sacramental Eucharist. Having confessed your transgressions, right? This is confess, then do the Eucharist. This is why we have that placement of the confession before the Eucharist in the liturgy. Um, or in the ancient churches, um, you would go to private or regular confession. And then you would take the Eucharist. There was no confession and absolution in the divine service in the West early, early on. That your sacrifice may be pure. And the sacrifice is, of course, it's the Eucharist. Your sacrifice of thanksgiving. You want this to be pure. Again, people need to get their focus um, otherwise. So we don't keep people away from the altar just to protect them. We also do that for the sanctity of the altar itself. We want our sacrifice to be pure. Confess your sins, purify your heart, then come. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord, let in every place offer to me a pure sacrifice. Again, it's very interesting to see the way that they apply text versus the way that uh, not all of us, but a lot of us sadly do wrongly. Appoint, therefore, for yourselves bishops and deacons. These are the offices that we are much more familiar with. And notice that there's not bishops, priests, and deacons two offices. Again, this relates to the dating. Um, Of course, if you read most Orthodox and Roman Catholics, they will admit that this threefold office, this distinction of bishop and priest and deacon is not original. It's not scriptural, something that developed over time. And if you read Irenaeus, who is the one, sorry, not Irenaeus, I think it's Ignatius Ignatius of Antioch, who's um, credited with having developed this he says i didn't receive this from any man like he didn't learn this no one else was doing this he said he received it as a revelation from god and if you're very lutheran you're going to balk at that and say no thanks as i do um not that we should throw it out necessarily but ick you know that's kind of weird not sure about that one he says appoint for yourselves these people And then he gives the the standard requirements for them. But what's key about this, not only the twofold office nature of it, but who's the one who's appointing them? Not laying hands, not ordaining, but appointing, right? Who's voting for the pastors? Who's voting for the priests? Who's voting for the deacons, right? bishop, priest, bishop, pastor, same thing here. So then the last chapter, this is about the return of the Lord. Again, closing it all up, this solidifies how we should read this, not as church order, but as catechetical material. Watch for your life's sake, going all the way back to the first chapter, bookending it. There's two ways, one of life, one of death, right? Which way will you walk? Be ye ready, for you know not the hour in which our Lord comes, and you shall be often together Meeting, seeking the things which are befitting for your souls. And this is the thing. Get your priorities right. Gather together often, not just on Sundays, yes, on Sundays, but gather together as often as you can uh, to do the things that you need to do for the sake of your soul. We have completely lost this notion of urgency in so many of our Western churches. That people are, I don't want to say that they're so secure in the gospel because that's not what it is, is that they have plug their ears to the law to the point that the gospel is almost irrelevant and useless, that it's almost um, a sweet nothing. And that's not the reality, is that we actually need the Eucharist. We actually need the forgiveness of sins, not as a legal necessity, but an evangelical necessity. You need to come to church and receive the things befitting your souls in the same way that you need to eat every day to live, right? This is the reality. For the whole time, of your faith, will not profit you if you are not made perfect in the last time. This is a dangerous thing to say and because of how long we've been going already in this episode. We don't really have time to talk about it. Maybe we'll do a third episode and we'll wrap it all up, talk about some of the more interesting theological positions that come out of this. Um, And so let's just wrap this up uh, all up right now, right? He says, For when the lawlessness increases, they shall hate and persecute and betray one another, and then shall appear the world deceiver singular as Son of God, right? And shall do signs and wonders in the earth, shall be delivered into his hands, and he shall do iniquitous things which ye have never, have net yet, ye ever, ever come to pass since the beginning. Sounds almost premillennial. And then he says, And then shall appear the signs of the truth, the first sign of an outspreading in heaven, then the sign of the sound of the trumpet. We all know this. This is end time stuff, right? But wrapping all of this up, this last chapter, what this is about is be ready. Why? Because he says all the things you did before, um, you can't bank, for example, if you end your life um, away from God, if you end your life in rank, unrepentant sin, you can't just say, oh, I did most of my life decently. That's not going to fly, right? So he says, be ready constantly and repeatedly oftenly uh, be at the altar be at the church seeking the things which befit your soul gather together be the church often prioritize your lives correctly it's simple teaching rudimentary teaching it's beautiful so um Either next time when we meet on the Lutheran Library, we'll be talking about Luther's meditation on the Passion of Christ, or we will be looking at um, one last small wrap-up episode on the Dedicate. We'll see how I feel. God bless you.